So we've got an amazing panel tonight. I, I hope you, um, um, you know, the experience of watching the movie, um, you know, really helped you understand the whole uh, cystic fibrosis situation, um, phage therapy, and uh, and what antimicrobial resistance is all about. Um, I think um, it would be nice if the panel can uh, introduce themselves, um, just briefly, so we have as much information as uh, time as possible for the questions. Um. You start, Richard. Okay. Thanks, Mark. So my name's Richard Alm. Uh, I'm currently the chief scientist at Carbex, which is a global non-profit funded by three governments and two philanthropic organisations. And our mission is to non-dilutively provide funding to uh, global companies and global academic institutions that are developing novel therapies for to treat, to diagnose and to prevent uh, infections caused by antibacterial resistance. Um, hi, my name's Anton Peleg. I'm an infectious diseases physician and a researcher. Um, I work at the Alfred Hospital um, and we are challenged uh, every day with antimicrobial resistant bacteria. Uh, we, had an, we have an adult cystic fibrosis um, unit at the Alfred as well as a, a transplant, lung transplant service. So, um, you know, that amazing story really um, resonates closely with us. Um, our research is very much focused on um, antimicrobial resistant bacteria and over recent months we've really started with a few people here in the room uh, a Victorian bacteriophage therapy program that links in with an initiative across Australia which is Phage Australia. So really just so thankful to have experienced that Diane and, and thank you for having us on this panel to talk about what we just about talked about but to see what that, that story was really quite phenomenal, so thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Trevor Lithgow. Uh, I'm a scientist at Monash University and I'm the director of the Centre to Impact AMR there. Um, it's a transdisciplinary uh, centre and that means that we have scientists, clinicians, engineers, sociologists, uh, even architects that are interested in the problem of AMR and trying to come up with sustainable solutions uh, to this uh, global problem. Um, and I was really touched by the story. Thank you very much, Diane. Hi, I'm Julia Chanchi and I'm from DMTC. I just have to quickly sort of peel the onion on what we do. Um, so DMTC, we manage collaborative projects to um, advance technologies for um, building capability in defence and national security in Australia. Within that, our Health Security Systems Australia division is working towards um, uh, development of products and decision support systems for um, chemical, biological and radiological threats, infectious diseases and um, pandemic pathogens of pandemic potential in that is medical countermeasures for which I'm the program leader and in our countermeasures program we're developing um, vaccines therapeutics and diagnostics and AMR is a you know health security uh, you know of, of priority in health security um, so through um, our medical countermeasures program defense is investing in specific programs to um, target AMR projects there, I've got a question from the audience. 
Um, the first one is about uh, thank you for sharing this beautiful story. Can you talk a bit about the impact you hope the film has and what changes you like it to make? Well, first of all, thank you to the panel. Uh, I didn't put this tour together at all. It's really Maude and Kristen who's running around taking pictures. And they have done an amazing job, I think, of recognizing that a patient story can change hearts and minds. And as they pursue their technology to try to attack the biofilm, it's really an amazing opportunity to have you here, the great minds in the room, to answer questions. It's just sad to me that more people aren't here, so the way I rationalize that is if everybody here leaves and tells five people, then the impact will be much greater. And there are so many aspects to talk about. I, I hope tonight there's a lot about phage therapy because of the people we have in the room, but there are so many aspects that are important. Okay, now what was the question? What's the impact I hope it's gonna make? Okay. Um, so it started because I was here to speak about the book. I started talking about the book because Mallory had spent 10 years writing and I felt she deserved her voice, needed to be heard, and it's the one thing I insisted on in the film was that they had some, somehow incorporate the book. The filmmakers did not want to. They wanted to make their own mark with Mallory's story, but I felt Mallory's voice is the strongest voice in the room when it comes to her story. So I hope that you will read the book and read more of what she had to say because she really documented so much of that journey. Um, but then when the film came out and the trailer that the director created in two minutes mentioned AMR three times, antipochromia resistance or resistance, they realized it was a vehicle and it was Richard's colleague, Kevin Outerson, who runs Carbex, who suggested that we take this story out on the road and that has manifested in so many different ways in so many different audiences. And at the end of the day, I am very fortunate to have a day job that pays me really well and allows me to travel. And so this is a labor of love and all of the profits from Salt in My Soul in perpetuity for both book and film will always go to research. Right now it's very specifically targeted to phage therapy. So show me some reason to give you some money and I will because we, we want to fund projects, but on a small scale, not on the same scale, the same scale that Richard is doing. He's doing it on the like multi-million dollar level. We're doing it on the compassionate use individual level. But my hope is that Mallory's story will serve as an example and underscore why you need to hear stories. Maude has her own story with her son who I had the privilege of meeting. And when it's personal, it's a much, much different situation. I know there are many people who make their living doing this. They're interested. They want to solve the problem. But when it's a loved one, it's at your core. And five years later, it's no less sad to me that Mallory's not here and sitting next to Natasha did not help as she was crying <laughs> and we're reliving her life. But on the other hand, if Mallory's story does help spur action, then I'll keep telling it and I'll keep screening the film and working with Maude and whoever else will have me. So. I've got one quick question for Julia. Um, can you tell a bit more about um, um, AMR and how it crosses the different sectors and especially around defense, what's, uh, what's the main worry there? I guess um, across the sort of our, our stakeholders, we have sort of whole of government stakeholders involved in driving our strategy in health security. So it's not just defense, it's... Um, foreign affairs and trade and border force and health and really everybody because um, we're seeing emergence of pathogens 
in our country and in our region as well. And as we travel and move around, we're going to see prevalence and spread of pathogens. So we're interested in both the treatments, which are of course really critical, but also prevention and preparedness as well. So that's why um, we have a strong interest as well in um, vaccine technology development and diagnostics. So we've invested in projects specifically to for diagnostics, rapid diagnostics to detect resistance and to detect pathogens because then that can help you move to the most appropriate treatments really quickly. And it's important for our, um, from a defence perspective, for our deployed personnel, um, especially into, into our near neighbouring regions, but also, of course, for civilian health. And of course, bugs don't uh, respect borders. No. <laughs> So we've got a question around um, how do we balance research on cutting-edge therapies versus research on implementation of AMR initiatives and also improving access to healthcare in Australia and the world? I wonder who wants to answer that. <laughs> Richard. At, yeah, looking at me. I, I, think, I think access, I'll start with access because I actually think access is one of the biggest issues. Um, and I'll come at it from several different ways. I'll, I, have a, I have a friend that works in a Cape Town hospital. He's been there. He's an English guy. He's been there for years. And I was at a meeting recently, uh, a few months ago, and he was asked to give a state of the state, if you like, of South Africa and the unmet need. And very bluntly, he stood up and said, it doesn't matter what you develop. He says, it won't make any difference to what I do day to day. He said, because in the townships of South Africa where the burden of disease is so high, he says, I have syphilitic mothers giving birth to deformed babies because I can't get penicillin. And so access to drugs is actually the biggest thing. And then you look at a country like Australia, who would you know, be on the high income scale. Of the last 19 antibiotics that have been approved by the US, three are available in Australia. So access is, is tough all around the world. And in countries like Australia, it's because companies won't market their drugs here because there's not enough sales, there's not enough volume. And so I think if we can tackle on a global scale access to get the right drug to the right patients at the right time with proper diagnostics, it'll go a long way to curbing AMR. So that's my, my pitch on access. Um. Has the way we approach AMR changed since uh, COVID-19? Maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, <coughs> you know, the interest and awareness of AMR definitely started pre-COVID, uh, which, which was good, uh, took a long time. Um, I think COVID consumed many people um, and sidetracked many people for a while, but hospitalisation you know, issues and hospital-acquired infections, and they're often associated with AMR, really started to come to the fore. Um, and so it became a bit of a link. So I think it, it, it sort of augmented the, the interest and the understanding. But I definitely would say that, you know, pre-COVID, we definitely had this um, path of, of increasing awareness, um, increasing national bodies, putting it as priorities, priorities on their national action plans, priorities for their funding, uh, we still have got a long way to go for that. Um, but um, I think COVID in a way, you know, has really shone the light on infectious diseases in general and the kind of uh, resources required and also the impacts of what infectious diseases can have, and that includes AMR. And I think there's been some you know, recent burden 
uh, studies to understand the burden of AMR, how many, how many you know, AMR-related infections are causing death now. And that's always been a really challenging one to, to work out. But uh, toward the end of last year, there was a really important paper that involved sort of 200 countries around the world providing data on, on infections due to bacteria that are resistant. And it estimated that just under 5 million deaths per year are associated with bacteria that are resistant uh, to antibiotics. So, you know, that was really very um, compelling and strong and, and, you know, I guess bringing a lot of awareness. Richard uh, calculated something. Yeah. <laughs> so, Diane, Diane likes my visual here. Um, people hear numbers and don't really, oh, yeah, it's a big number, what does that really mean? So the 4.95 million people that die, and this is not just of bacterial infections, this is resistant bacterial infections. That's the equivalent to a 747 crashing and killing everyone on board every 39 minutes for a year. Now Boeing shut down their 737s when two planes went down. You would hope that governments around the world would do something if there was a plane falling out of the sky killing everyone on board every 39 minutes. And that's where we are now. And the estimates from that paper are 10 million a year. That's a person dying every three seconds. So picture that. Time we're sitting here talking, hundreds of people are dying. Trevor, uh, you're in the midst of lots of different research running at Monash. Um, you want to talk a bit about um, the different style um, therapies that you see coming out in the world and you know what's intriguing, what's... Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I think, I guess, maybe I'll just preface it by saying that, because you're, you're right, so the, the sort of work we do at Monash at the Centre to Impact AMR does draw on expertise from different faculties, and we see that as being really important. And I wanted to just sort of touch on a couple of the things that have been said in order to make that clear to everyone in the audience. Um, so we talk about deaths, and, you know, that's, that's chilling, you know, when you start to put a graphical... Uh, representation of the number of deaths to AMR, but I think if Mallory's story has taught us anything, it's not it's not only the death, but actually the suffering that leads up to that death, and the suffering and the burden that the whole family and community bear for every one of those deaths. So then, when you multiply it into Richard's uh, 747 um, story, um, it, it really gives you a sense of the burden of AMR, and so we approach this not only in terms of new therapeutics and you know, what would be the next great solution to treating the infection, but also to understanding patient stories and, and the nature of the way in which the healthcare system could be changed so that we could better support people who are going through the process of dealing with these drug-resistant infections. And that's where it's so important to have people from the Faculty of Arts and from, you know, clinical services and public health and so on involved and talking to scientists like me who would like nothing more than to be in the lab coming up with cures that would make a difference, but to make sure that you fully understand um, the issue and the impact that your work can have. Also to be realistic in terms of promises made, I think also in the story it was very clear that you know, some promises are made of you know, gene therapies and so on that you know, were just around the corner, but turns out they were not. Um, and it's really important therefore that you know, whatever, whenever we talk about new therapies and things that if only we've got investment in our research, um, things would be different. We have to be completely realistic because we are talking to people about people. It's not just science and, you know, U-Butte technologies that we hope to, to have on online. 
Um, I think phage therapy is one of the big ones that uh, we're certainly invested in, in the Centre to Impact AMR, and so that's a very close uh, um, relationship that we have with the centre, and in fact, the, the phage foundry, you know, the, the operation that we have at Monash for um, producing phages is run by Jeremy Barr, who's in the audience tonight, and Jeremy's team are involved in recognising the best phages, producing them at scale, and then handing them on to Anton's service at the Alfred. So we're, we're building that as a, as a kind of a pipeline, which sounds gimmicky, but it really is a pipeline, uh, from the production through to the quality control and then the availability for people. And so I think phage therapy really is something that's going to... Um, it won't be... It, it's not a replacement for antibiotic drugs uh, by any means, but that's not the aim for any new therapies. Uh, we need everything. We need everything in the toolkit to be able to, to work against this problem of AMR. And I have two questions to follow-up. Do you have the funding you need see this through because in the United States the big barrier that I'm hearing about every time I go anywhere is lack of funding for phage therapy. Richard, I hope your ears are perking up. <laughs> yeah, let, let's work him over after the session as well. But um, uh, So no is the short answer. Um, no, so don't we, we don't have the funding that we need. So we are on a constant sort of hamster wheel of trying to come up with the funding that we need in order that we can put good ideas into practice. Um, I think there are many issues and we won't, you know, it's not even worth discussing them tonight in the sense of trying to solve them tonight, but, but there are many issues. Australia's a small country, the budget for research is small, there are many things that, you know, are also important that have to be funded. Um, but if we are looking at such a huge and devastating problem, then in fact all of those are excuses that have to be uh, pushed to the side and the money has to be found and we have to work out ways in which we can get this research funded. I always like to well, I tell this audience because I like to tell anyone who will listen that Australian scientists, young Australian scientists are amongst the best in the world and certainly the young Australian scientists and other researchers that are in our centre at Monash are, you know, crash hot, best in the world people. Uh, they've trained for this sort of issue and they know what to do and so the question is can we get the funding which mostly goes to pay their wages so they can do the work that's required in order that we can have these therapies. We do need better investment into this issue. I just want to add to yeah. that. I think um, I agree with all of that. And what we want to also see in part of our, our and a lot of people around us, our advocacy is for um, funding, longer term funding models so that the investment is not short, one, two years long, long term, because these programs to get something from research to clinical trials and through regulatory and all of that, it takes time and we're advocating a lot of us for longer funding models and for direct, directed funding so to ask specific questions of researchers because they will answer them and not just these open sort of nebulous calls but the specific questions and where we can really play in Australia, you know, we're never going to have the amount of money that the US or Europe have probably but we can target it well and our scientists can really stretch a dollar and so if we do it, we can, we can focus our investment and really progress things all the way through to clinic if we, if we have longer, longer term investment. Yeah, just I'll, I'll highlight there was a policy brief that came out of Sweden earlier, or middle of last week, from REMAP, which is REACT. There was a, um, a workshop held with, I think, 15 people across the industry, and a lot of them were academic. 
to highlight the biggest challenges and we split them up into different areas and one of them was st structural challenges and that exact point was made, the longevity of funding. Because if you live grant to grant and it's only two years, you never have time to implement. And so that was actually one of the biggest calls, I think, from the academics in the room that there is, I don't want to call them block grants, but there's sustainability in funding um, so that you can actually hire and retain people. And I'll even say that at CarbX, when we fund academic institutions, we are under the pump, if you like, because most academic institutions, unless they're guaranteed grant funding, can't hold a position for any of their postdocs or researchers. And so uh, bureaucracy with contracting aside, sometimes it's really hard to make sure the right people are maintained if their grants are constantly expiring. Um, so that is an issue. There is, of course, also like not just in the academic institutions. So we also have uh, the companies who are, you know, building things. And um, if we take into a, like normally we expect you, you develop a drug and then at a certain stage you hand over to a large pharma company and there's kind of like an early stage commercialization option. We find in the antimicrobial space it's really, really difficult because of, uh, the, you know, the business model around antibiotics. And so it does, like, it, it sounds like we also need to find a way to kind of fund these type companies. So that we, um, you know, not only do university research, but actually translate it um, a bit further. But I want to make a suggestion, Richard, because Richard, you, I'm going to be quoting you in every talk I ever do from now on. <laughs> because, I mean, first of all, if, imagine if the New Yorker did a cartoon with the plane going down. But it seems to me that we should, you should tweet and we should retweet. Because you're right, what government doesn't go after a plane uh, an airline when a plane goes down. Yeah. And if your analogy is true, which we all know it is, then it's clearly a lack of understanding as to why nobody is funding this at the government level. I mean, I don't know if Richard, if you want to talk about what's happening in the US, I don't feel like I have enough knowledge to know. But I do think that if every country were, under, were to understand in that kind of a visual example, and that's really the most visual example. Obviously, Mallory's story is amazing, but it takes 96 minutes and a theater to, to really grasp it. You get a much deeper dive, but that, that idea that every 39 minutes a plane crash is happening is just, I don't understand why. I mean, I think you need to take that and amplify it and we'll help you amplify it, but I think it would be very helpful. Yeah, I might just also make a comment. I think um, what's really hard is that um, the solutions are often not easy. So, um, you know, there are often, you know, times when we're, we're thinking, okay, if you had all the money, what would, it, what would it look like? What would you do? And I think there, you know, there's a lot of debate. There's no silver bullet that's sort of going to fix this whole problem. It has to be tackled at, you know, multiple angles. But um, I think that, um, you know, the approach that Trevor's just mentioned about this really multidisciplinary, coming at it from multiple angles, faculties of arts and 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 you know really thinking about it in different ways i think is is absolutely crucial and i think we probably don't do that enough we don't cross human to agriculture food industry other things enough um but the solutions are not easy um but i think you know a little little ray of hope in the in the phage story is um with our program i did go to our ceo at our hospital and i i I said, this is this is our program. We've got patients like Mallory. 
we've got you know we we want a compassionate use pathway we we need to start generating this he said put a business case in you know sh show me what this looks like and amazingly you know in the latter part of last year he's kind of funded not just a pilot program but he's put it into continuous funding to have to support a implementation a service of a, of a phage th service that can give compassionate use pathway which was really visionary and amazing but you know we know that this pipeline is 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 really long it's not just the end game there's so many steps that need support um, so that's sort of one cog in a whole wheel but I think it was um, you know uplifting for us as a group I think and um, we hope that we can build on that uh, to get the whole pipeline running smoothly and, and obviously you know the need for those clinical trials that's where we do need the bigger you know industry support or government support for clinical trials because that's what's really lacking in this space if we continue doing just compassionate use single cases we still are not really answering the question of you know does phage therapy actually make a difference compared to placebo and i think that's a question we still need to answer i was going to ask another question no, but you can say something yeah, the question I had is um, more like, um, you know, talking a bit more about uh, AMR as much broader than uh, um, some of the infections we looked at today. Um, and one thing that stands out is that those, um, you know, the, the lower socioeconomic um, groups are suffering a lot more. For instance, our, you know, indigenous uh, children have the highest rate of bronchiectasis-associated pneumonia in the world. And you know, we, you know, we we kind of need to look at these things and how can we actually? And this brings back the the issue around the terms of AMR. Like we talk about, this is a lung infection, that's an ear infection, um, this is this specific bacteria, but it's actually in principle it's the same disease. And how can we actually breach that that we start to talk? So um, before. I need to answer that question, and I need to answer it with the way I always answer it every single time, and you guys need to hear this. This is my little rant, and that is a big problem is with the language. So many people in the space call it AMR for antimicrobial resistance. The CDC, our most respected healthcare institution in America, calls it AR, and they send emails under it for antibiotic resistance. The medical journals call it MDR for multiply drug resistant. The doctors called it DRI, oh, you're shaking your head, DRI for drug resistance infections. Then the people that work at the hospital refer to it as sepsis, and then the Partnership to Fight Infectious Disease calls it superbugs. So that is, in my opinion, the very, very first thing that needs to happen is we have to all agree that we're talking about one problem. And then the other thing that, because Maud is always asking the questions, I want to ask her a question. I want to give her the chance because one of the beauties of this tour for me has been understanding more about the biofilm. I was told about the biofilm when Mallory was 12 because they said she's going to get a biofilm from the Cepatia and I grew, well, I grew, you know, Mallory grew up and I grew up next to her understanding it, but whenever I ask anybody if they know what it is, so I want to say, will you explain the biofilm as part of, as part of one of the many solutions because we haven't done that before. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the biofilm, uh, like you saw in the video before, it's kind of this uh, gooey matrix that gets expressed. And there, you know, there are references that say about 80% of bacterial infections actually include a biofilm. And we, we're not addressing that. 
The moment we start addressing that, we could uh, make generic antibiotics work again. We could potentially make phage therapy reach the bacteria. So when we talk about multiple different ways of dealing with infection, is by understanding that bacteria are very, very clever. They've survived for billions of years. And um, we treat them as if they're dumb planktonic creatures. So let's just step up and treat them as they are. They, they're communities of, uh, you know, quite intelligent communities. And they use multiple tools. So if we go in straight with uh, antibiotics, we often get a resistance reaction because they're under attack. So by, by taking that system away, you can actually um, go back in with the antibiotics. And I don't know whether anybody else on the panel has experience with antibiofilms. Um, whether you guys want to say anything? Uh, I mean, I think that in the hospital system, I think you're 80%. So probably 80% of our hospital-acquired infections, are the primary source is bacteria in a biofilm attached to catheters, whether vascular catheters, urinary catheters, or ventilator tubing. Um, so, um, w you know, we definitely don't have solutions at the clinical level uh, for biofilm infections. In actual fact, our, our really only solution for cure is to remove the foreign material. So we can give antibiotics that suppress, they'll prevent the bacteria from coming off the foreign material and maybe getting into the bloodstream, so they'll prevent that, but they won't ever cure that. And so, you know, it's like prosthetic joint infections, you know, removing the infected material is our current strategy, which is pretty crude. And, you know, we're really desperate for new approaches. We really are. Because that pipeline is very, very small, the, the pipeline of new uh, of antibiofilm agents, because it's fairly recent that we started to get the ability to actually deal with them. So I think you guys are working on a well, we're, we're, we're funding, <laughs> we're not working on it, but yeah, we're, we're funding and we've had a couple of companies in our portfolio um, that are working on antibody-based technologies to pull apart the biofilm that again, don't do anything directly to the bacteria, they just make the bacteria accessible to the drugs that we already have to hopefully, you know, make them then susceptible to the drugs that we have in our arsenal because the challenge is and this is, I think, why Carbex funds so many non-traditionals, is that there's just not enough of a pipeline. It take, We talked about how long it takes funding. I mean, I worked in Big Pharma um, before they got out of it for about 20 years. And in my entire career, I put two drugs into the clinic because that's how long it takes. Um, I was lucky enough to work on a couple that did make it, um, that we in-licensed at late stage. But in 20 years, from the ones we started in scratch, we got two into into man and neither of them made it past phase one. So I mean it is it is hard and it is long and I think the funding aspect is true and we, we touched on pull and push mechanisms just you know what can governments do. I think if you think about antibiotics when you know penicillin first came and then in the in the 50s and the 60s there was a lot of antibiotics and you could you could jump between them, you could take an oral one, an IV one, this bug, that bug, there was a lot of options. And I think as a global society, we've taken that for granted. We've always assumed that antibiotics would be there to underpin any other surgeries that we need, whether they're prosthetic joints or transplants. Uh, and now that underpinning foundation is being eroded so fast that we don't have the safety net, if you like, of antibiotics. And so, especially in the US, a lot of 
deaths in the hospital go down as you know complications from surgery, which is basically an infection. But then the the hospital doesn't have to declare it as a hospital acquired infection. And so there's different mechanisms to try and build that pipeline up to a robustness that you need to get an extra. You know, it's been estimated we need six novel drugs a decade to keep on top of this. And if you do the probability of success of how long, how many projects it takes to get six drugs all through that to the market, you have to start with four and a half thousand projects or something at the beginning to get them through. And that's that's obviously a lot of funding. So Carbex is a push mechanism. We give money to push <laughs> projects through the start of the pipeline. But there's been a lot of work and the US is trying to pass legislation, which is, you know, they say legislation takes an act of Congress, which sometimes doesn't work. Um, it's been on there for a while. Um, the Pasteur Act, which is a pool mechanism. Now the UK and Sweden are both piloting a pool mechanism. Um, and Australia is investigating one, which is fantastic to hear. And, and what a pool mechanism is, is it delinks the value of an antibiotic away from the amount you sell. Because the challenge that companies have, and this is why so many large pharma have left, is as soon as you make a drug, the doctors say, that's a really good drug, we're going to keep it until we really need it, and then they won't sell it. And so the company that's just spent 1.3 billion US to develop the drug doesn't make any money. They'll make like $20 million a year back, and that doesn't go far in paying off $1.3 billion of debt. So a, a pull mechanism then is to say, okay, we will give, we will give you money for developing that drug, whether it's used or not. It's kind of like, if you think about it, in your town where you live now, you have a fire station. And this is one of the analogies. You pay for that fire station through your taxes and you hope to never use it. But your taxes pay for the firemen to be trained and for the trucks to be ready, such that if you need it and your house is burning, the truck is available and the people are trained to come and save your house. That's what antibiotics are. We need them there when it's time to use them and you hope you never do, but if you do, you've already invested in that infrastructure to have them there. That's what a pull mechanism is. So what is the main driver of AMR in Australia? For example, antibiotic misuse is the driver in certain countries. <coughs> Maybe I'll take that one, but I might let Anton uh, rescue me if I go, go, go off the garden path. Um, in Australia, uh, as was said before, we are a relatively lucky country in terms of the standard of health care. It's patchy and not everyone gets the level of health care that they deserve. Um, but compared to the rest of the world and very many places in the rest of the world, including several places in our region, um, we have a pretty good setup uh, in terms of healthcare. Uh, so stewardship of antibiotics, that is the good practice and the usage when they're required but not when they're not required uh, in clinical settings is at a very high level. It's something that always needs attention. It's one of these things you can never... Uh, let things down, but it's pretty good in Australia compared to many other places in the world. Um, so that is probably not a major driver of AMR. If you look at all of the AMR um, bacteria and fungi uh, that we have in Australia, there's a certain amount of um, prevalence of AMR, so a, a sort of an evolution to have AMR bacteria and fungi that is driven through agriculture, though again, in Australia compared to the rest of the world, we're actually pretty good in not wasting antibiotics uh, uh, just as, as sort of um, general use additives to cattle feed or pig feed or chicken feed. Um, other countries do and we largely don't. Um, 
there is a certain amount, and here's uh, a, um, an exercise for people who are here in the audience and want to go home and do something today. Uh, throw away all of your soap, well, throw away, dispose carefully of all of your soaps, detergents, and things that clean your washing machine that have antimicrobials in them because you don't need them. They don't help, and all they do is go into the waterways and promote anti antimicrobial resistance in the surrounding bacteria and fungi, and next time you cut yourself in the garden, it's going to be one of those resistant bugs that gets into the cut and not a sensitive one. Um, because of all of the, the excess antimicrobial that gets flushed into the waterways um, and thrown about the place here. Um, soaps work just fine to clean your hands. Having an antimicrobial added to the soap doesn't do anything more except uh, it's a good marketing gimmick for some soaps to get a, a leg up on other soaps. In terms of major drivers, for the, for the, for the people who are going to suffer um, with illnesses, then I think oftentimes it is an infection that they acquire in a hospital, a post-operative infection or something that's picked up from surfaces because, let's face it, hospitals are hot spots for people who are sick and therefore um, hospitals have to go to a great deal of, of trouble, and they do, uh, in trying to remove the background contamination of microbes. But there's a, a, there's a growing amount of um, antimicrobial uh, problem and acquisition of antimicrobial infections that come from communities in Australia now. So I think, you know, the more we do to depress the problem in hospitals, which we must do and we should do, and people like Anton do every day, um, the more we do there, the more we notice that out in community, uh, the amount of antimicrobial bacteria and antimicrobial fungus that's in the environment and therefore is lapping against our skin every day is increasing. I have a question, though, uh, and this is really for Richard. When you, when when you talk about the plane going down every 39 minutes, Mallory's death was recorded as death by cystic fibrosis. But she didn't die from CF because she had a lung transplant and she was doing great. She died from resistant bacteria. What I want to know when you talk about those ones that are acquired, do the numbers take into account all the, one, all the cases of cancer, HIV, malaria, CF, that are misreported as not being AMR when in fact they are AMR? Yeah, so um, that was a real challenge in the paper that, that reported the burden. Um, we were lucky enough to contribute data from Australia and the Pacific to that paper and so we got a little bit of insight into methodology. It was a real challenge to be able to um, make that distinction. Um, so that's why they used the word die associated with um, yeah, and then that they had this other part which was attributable to, which was a much lower number. That's right. Um, so that, as you say, is a real challenge for, for actually measuring the impact. But I think this paper probably came as close as it can be to that, so that people who had other illnesses and a bacterial infection that was resistant to antibiotics were, were counted. Uh, but it is a challenge to get that. Correct. And also different countries have different abilities for the surveillance. Absolutely, yep. Yep, that's right. So I think we might uh, wrap it up, unless there's something really pressing from anyone. I'd, I'd just like to say on a personal note, I've, I've now travelled with Diane and Maud around. I'd seen the movie before I came, but I've seen it now four times since. I'm Perth, Brisbane, Adelaide, and now here in Melbourne. It it gets harder to watch every time. I think as I get to know 
Diane and her husband Mark more as I travel and meet them at the different cities, it gets harder and it shows the power of a, of a personal story and I just like to ask everyone to thank Diane for showing the courage that she has in, in championing Mar Mallory's life and making this book and this film so that we can all hopefully learn to make the world a better place. Absolutely.